to episode 94 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 20th of July, 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Put him under pressure. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hi there. Wow, such enthusiasm. Uh, We have got quite a lot of news to get through this time. There's been a lot going on, which is unusual for this time of year, but I suppose... uh, People can't go out much, so they just uh, create drama instead. <laughs> so let's start with the good news. And that is that you, Irish, have open sourced your uh, track and trace app thing and given it to the Linux Foundation public health project so that other countries can use it instead of having the government pay their mates a few million quid to come up with something that shit and doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so the Irish government, the HSE, which is the Health Service Executive. HSE. Yes, what I said. <laughs> uh, the Near Forum, who are the devs, and the Science Foundation Ireland uh, sponsored the work to get done and came up with the name of a app for measuring all the dying people from COVID and called it COVID Green. I mean, any sort of relation to Soylent Green is probably a really <laughs> poor sort of correlation there but yeah no they've donated that to the Lynx foundation public health uh, project which has now two projects there's another one called covid shield as well and um yeah i think that's really good i mean that's how public money should be spent yeah and we'd like to sort of take the piss out of the Lynx foundation for having too many projects and stuff but this is really what they should be doing they should be this trusted organization that governments can go to to kind of oversee projects that have been made with public money, as you say. So I'm very much in favour of this. Well done, the Irish, and well done, Linux Foundation. Yeah, well done. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I take full credit. (laughs) Yeah, you and the Linux lads are all gloating about this. Well, Canonical announced something fairly big over the last couple of weeks, and that is Linux desktop app support for Flutter. Flutter being Google's cross-platform toolkit to make applications obviously they're promoting snaps for all of this so you can get the uh the development environment via snap and you can easily publish your snaps and i think that irked quite a lot of people there was a bit of a backlash about this that i saw i think there's always going to be a backlash about anything with canonical in the name true but it made me think that canonical have got a bit of a pr problem when it comes to snaps because the the store isn't open source and Popey has said oh well we did that with Launchpad we open sourced it and no one used it and people just found something else to moan about but it feels like they haven't quite got that message out there properly that snaps are there to make it easier to distribute software and all of the benefits of them Graham I know you are on the snap team so you have to be careful about what you say here but like have you noticed this perception and this this sort of PR problem Considering I was um, the editor of a magazine that uh, wants to a cover feature called Has Ubuntu Lost It? I can see it <laughs> from both sides. Um, and I think, you know, Canonical is in a challenging position. It's got different target audiences. And often we report on kind of the feedback from one audience that sometimes is, is, is a real challenge to address, you know, and, and maybe we as Canonical don't do a good enough job at communicating you know, or, or being as open as I feel Canonical is inside, you know, it, it doesn't always come across that Canonical is that open, which I, no one's going to believe me, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple of observations here. Um, 
regardless of what Canonical do, the open source community would not hear the message about a good thing if it came from Canonical. The theme has been set that Canonical are evil, that Ubuntu is a beginner's distro, and that Canonical are out to own the app ecosystem and um, prevent other people from getting in on it. So regardless of what Canonical do, that message is never going to be well received by the the greater community that i think that's just a fact you may disagree i don't suspect that you guys don't though Um, and the other observation is from outside canonical i think that when you're in canonical it's very easy to get trapped in an echo chamber and not realize it i certainly didn't realize it but i'm starting to see over the over the edge now and the community around ubuntu and the people who communicate with that community do a great job but there is a huge world out there and i think that the the boundaries that the people inside canonical are communicating up to should be pushed further out and they should go and investigate or or go and spend time going out into the the wider developer community, not just the open source community, the wider developer community to tell their message. And I think maybe they'd have a bit more success because there's an awful lot of people out there who use um, free software and, and don't really hear the messages coming from Canonical directly. But isn't that exactly what this is, working with Google? We've seen them work with Microsoft now, with Google, trying to push it way beyond the the tiny bubble or big bubble, whatever it is, but beyond that bubble into the wider world of software and IT. Isn't that what they've been trying to do for the last few years? Uh, absolutely. This fits that pattern but you look at the places where you picked up these these news articles about it and it's the same suspects it's pharonics it's lwn it's the canonical blog it's you know tweets from um canonical employees and other ubuntu accounts so i think there's still work to do there i i don't doubt for a moment that the marketing team and the community team are on top of this and they they are doing good work and having your voice amplified by the likes of microsoft and google to their their users is definitely the best way to do that. It's funny you all took such a negative look at this, or I, I was looking at it more in the fact that we now have Steam and Proton, uh, we've got WSL, and we have now obviously Flutter from Google, and that's like all sort of platform areas. That's the enterprise Microsoft crowd now using Linux. It's gamers potentially being able to use well certain amount of games on Linux. And mobile app developers able to develop for both mobile and Linux all at once. So I kind of thought that was kind of good, but I clearly was using <laughs> rose tinted glasses. No, no, I think it is, it is good. And you're right. And it's a pity. I think maybe that's what we're discussing. It's a pity that the, the goodness in these stories gets lost, um, by the fact that it's canonical that's at the center of the story. Um, because it is, it's a really, Flutter's really interesting, especially with cute being kind of, well, the future of Qt's uncertain, and it's not uncertain, uncertain, but what I mean is it's nice to have a nice cross-platform, easy-to-use um, alternative, which Flutter is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's basically a UI toolkit for creating material like apps, um, and it works really well. And it's, you know, it is good news that we can use this on our Linux desktop, and it's open source. Yeah, and it means that we will ultimately get more software available to us on the Linux desktop, which has got to be a good thing. Some of it will be open source, some of it might not necessarily be, but more software is always good. 
Absolutely. I think that people are writing three, perhaps three types of app now, maybe four. They're writing Android apps, they're writing iOS apps, they're writing web apps, and then they're writing Windows apps. And, and I think Popey's talked about this numerous occasions. Nobody, relatively speaking, nobody is writing Linux apps. And so if you restrict yourself to just Linux toolkits, you know, let's, let's just say, for example, GTK and um, Qt, if you restrict yourself to those toolkits, you're restricting the, the breadth of applications you've got access to. Bringing Flutter on board is a, well, could be and probably will be, opening the door to an enormous number of apps that otherwise Linux would go without. To be fair, you can run GTK and Qt apps on Windows, but this is more cross-platform, or at least it promises to be more cross-platform. Although I did read something saying that it's not quite as straightforward as that because some of the things that you would do to write it for mobile platforms won't work on the desktop and vice versa. So it's it's not quite the the java promise of right once run everywhere but it's it's getting a bit closer to it i think you find that's right once debug everywhere but oh that's it yeah yeah but i think broadly a positive development and the haters going to hate obviously that's just how it always goes yeah i'd rather we pick on google let's <laughs> get them to open source gmail dare to dream all right let's talk about pine 64 their monthly update this time was pretty big. They announced a lot of different stuff. I think the one that's got most publicity is the new rev of the PinePhone. So they're calling it the PinePhone Convergence Package with post-market OS. And this time there's an option to get the phone with three gigabytes of RAM rather than two and more storage. And also a USB, they call it a dock. It's a dongle really, to be fair, with uh, Ethernet and USB and stuff hdmi and if you look at what postmarket os are saying about it they are very much tempering expectations about the experience that you know they say this is for hackers this is for people who want to tinker with it and stuff it's not going to be this polished experience but that's always the way with these things so that that's pretty cool I'm hoping that I might be able to get one. Unfortunately, the older revisions of the Pine phone don't support this video out mode from the USB-C because of, well, a fuck up, basically. Is this the soldering video? <laughs> yeah, I think it is going to involve soldering to fix it, but they are saying that they're going to try and sort it out for people who can get theirs fixed at like local meetups or whatever, obviously COVID-dependent. But, you know, if you bought an early adopter phone, I mean, the, the one that I bought was called Braveheart because you were brave to get it. And so, you know, I don't think it's a huge issue there. But I'm hoping that I will get my hands on one of these um, ones with three gigabytes of RAM and able to do this conversion stuff. I really wish that they'd made it so you could put the phone into the USB dongle dock thing so you could, you know, could prop it up mm. because that would be pretty neat um because it's that kind of size anyway and then you even maybe charge it or or the USB-C connections on that and then you could just just take a keyboard surely you can print yourself one <laughs> yeah. but then you've got to take two things yeah true something that was just a bit out of left field really what they're calling the pine sill which is a ts100 compatible risk 5 soldering iron for 25 dollars <laughs> yeah now i need a good soldering iron because mine is terrible but do I need it to have a Risk Five chip in it? I don't know. Like, what's the TS one hundred? I know nothing about soldering irons. I know it's cheaper than my current bog standard 
Antex soldering iron. Um, <laughs> and apparently this would be better. I don't know. <laughs> you can power it from USB-C, which seems pretty cool, or a barrel plug. So I think you need a pretty beefy charger, though, you know, power supply for it, because obviously they get hot and use a lot of juice. It actually looks really good. I mean, I do quite a lot of soldering, but my soldering station is like this ancient thing from China, which probably puts my life at risk and everyone dear to me when I use it. Uh, but Did you wonder why I had a boom microphone <laughs> attached to it? <laughs> but this looks really cool. No, no. I mean, I think you've skipped over the best thing that Pine released in that newsletter. That's the battery charger. I want a battery charger for my phone so I can like be mid-90s StarTac like phone where you can pop them out and click one of those in that's the way to go yeah that is that's one of the cool things about the pine phone is the removable battery and it's like a standard samsung phone battery or something i seem to recall that you can get for about 20 quid or maybe less yeah was it a j5 or something weird like that i think it was really standard though yeah yeah quite readily available so that's pretty cool i thought it was a battery for an ericsson (laughs) (laughs) get your kestrel gtx jacket on um they was another thing that they've announced that it's looking closer to the upgrade kit for the original Pinebook because that's something they promised when they announced the Pinebook Pro all, I don't know, that was a long time ago, that you can get, um, basically rip out the innards and put in the uh, the more modern board and make it a kind of Pinebook Pro. Obviously, it's not going to have the uh, the metal body and everything, but I'd like to do that to my original Pinebook and then have effectively two Pinebook Pros, that'd be pretty cool. But yeah, have a read through it. It's a massively long update, and there's lots going on over there with software and everything, and even something called BSD. I don't know what that is, but that's apparently coming to the uh, Pinebook Pro. Sounds evil. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash lnl, and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, with full root access in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and super fast SSDs. You can use a distro like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS, or FreeBSD, or you can even upload your own custom image. Or you can use their one click apps like Basic Lamp and LampStacks, WordPress, Discourse, or GitLab. I've been using DigitalOcean for years now, and in that time, they've added tons of new features, things like managed databases and Kubernetes, object storage, and recently, virtual private cloud, which allows you to create multiple private networks for your account or team. The droplets start from as little as $5 a month, but you can scale them all the way up to 192 gigabytes of RAM with 32 CPU cores and 12 terabytes of storage, but you can add block storage or object storage as you need it. And if you need particularly high amounts of RAM or CPU, they have droplets optimized for that too. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. So there was a bit of controversy over the last week or so with LibreOffice. It all started when someone noticed in the LibreOffice 7 release candidate, in the about dialogue thing page whatever it's called it said that this is the personal edition and it's worked on by volunteers and meant for private use only or something and that ruffled a lot of feathers made people think well hang on what are they going to start changing the license start charging for it what's going on uh we can't use this in academic institutions and nonprofits if it's only for personal use um and then 
they slowly but surely walked all that back and said, oh, right, no, we're not going to do this in uh, seven, because it was part of a marketing strategy. Wasn't very strategic then, was it? Well, especially given that there was a domain name on the slides that were uh, available for this marketing uh, strategy that had not been registered when they first became available. It has now been registered. I'm not sure by who, whether it was them or not, Hmm. but that was not a very smooth move by them. And just this whole thing, just it's a bit amateurish how they went about it. They were supposed to have this big announcement of how they were going to market it over the next five years and get some of the ecosystem partners like Collabora involved and, and start making some money with this thing to support it. But because it leaked through the source code being available and people trying out this release candidate, they were just sort of caught on the hop and didn't deal with it very well. I think this is clumsy wording in the about dialogue. And you know maybe it was written by the uh, marketing department, but equally likely it was just written by a developer who'd been told or who had worked in the project and just said, oh, that'll do for now and not really put too much thought in it. And then people read a lot more into it than is actually there and... These things have a habit of of getting out of hand. Now, they have since reversed their opinion, so perhaps this was a a bad idea in the first place. Um, But, yeah, this this sort of thing happens a lot with open source projects where you haven't got uh, a, a very clear leader who is saying how things will be and where you're doing all of your development in the open, then works in progress, crazy ideas, sensible ideas that are half-formed, whatever, they do tend to sneak out into the public and people jump to conclusions. Now, whether or not they jump to a conclusion here, I, I don't know, but um, we, we see this a lot, right? I'm a bit conflicted, really, about the LibreOffice project. Um, I've been very supportive of them for a long time. I think what they're doing is right. Um, you know, they're fighting constantly against the momentum that OpenOffice.org still has, um, despite, you know, the relatively infrequent updates. And Michael Meek's um, mailing list post was interesting. You can see how how many developers Collabora have, for example, 25 compared to, you know, a couple of Red Hat developers and a few others here and there. The project basically is moribund slightly. Um, I'd like to criticize it because of its lack of progress, the lack of change that I've seen in it over the last five or 10 years. Um, and the marketing department, which is just a couple of people, um, probably doing it part time. One of them, one of whom is uh, Mike Saunders. It's one of those projects, a bit like the GIMP that you don't realize is kind of fallen on hard times or is, is finding it at a struggle because relatively, they do a good job of marketing themselves and making themselves look seriously professional when really they're operating on so few resources. And I think that's probably the real cause of all this. And so, yeah, I think having just taught myself around to Vic, you know, I, I'm positive and support them doing it. And this is, I, I suppose the important projects like this we should recognise and try and help. And I think the underlying proposal here that there might be a version which is free for people to use and there is another version which corporations should buy, I think is a perfectly valid business case and I think a a good way of funding open source development. I think the idea is sound. Yeah, I mean, when you see in Meeks's post where he lists all the major sort of institutions that are using LibreOffice for free, even with no security updates because they're not going through them properly, like parts of the UK government even are doing it. 
Um, and he was saying that they don't even have a, a, a paying customer to the Clabber side of things for since 2018. Like, it's a bit sad that Open Office is still out there and still able to, to draw attention away. Like I still, I still see people, clients and that who come up and say, Oh yeah, I've got the latest open office. And it's like, like really open office. Do you mean LibreOffice? And like, what do you mean? Oh shit. Right. No, the, the mind share of open office was so strong as the free version of office. However long, 15 years ago that it, it just continues now. A load of people don't want to pay for Microsoft bullshit and so they say, oh, right, I'll get open office then. Still, it's massively popular. And it's a shame. If if only they could have worked that out and not had to fork it, I think we'd be in a better position now. Something that I think you spotted, Phelim, over the last couple of weeks was Rogue Laser's post, etcd or why modern software makes me sad, where he talks about how etcd was this great, bit of software but then it was basically ruined by all the kubernetes people and it's quite funny the the way he puts it well i think it's a bit tongue-in-cheek isn't it yeah it is he i think he even had to put a, a slight uh, warning on the left-hand side in a box out because he thought oh dear people are taking this way too seriously <laughs> but uh i mean it does go along to say a lot of the stuff where people from big megacorp are working at megacorp become ex megacorp employees and then um, making up a lot of the project and infrastructure involved where you take a very small functional single use project and then turn it into a behemoth. And uh, it's quite funny the way he does it all. I was mainly looking for it when I saw it looked like it might be anti-cloud, but I was disappointed that it was actually <laughs> straightforward and quite logical in its outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the best line in it is I would go so far as to say that Kubernetes is the worst thing to happen to system administration since system D. <laughs> <laughs> but he kind of has a point about Kubernetes, doesn't he? That um, what it really does is add hundreds of new failure modes to your software, moves you from writing portable software configuration to writing thousands of lines of Kubernetes-specific YAML, and ensnare you in a mesh of questionably good patterns like containerization and software-defined networking. Isn't that anti-cloud? It seems like pretty anti-cloud rhetoric to me. I know, that's why I loved the article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll link to it anyway. It's, uh, it's quite a funny read. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code late night Linux before the end of August to upgrade and get free access to a beta of a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this free offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade before the end of August with the code Late Night Linux. That's automation.link and the code Late Night Linux. Will, you proposed a new segment, Bullshit Article of the Week. <laughs> did I? Yeah, I was quite drunk when you did it. I think I might have been as well. <laughs> yeah. But this is, what does the future hold for edge computing? Now, if you want to play IT bullshit bingo, this is a prime fucking candidate for it. It's just all of the buzzwords like AI, machine learning, and how it's all about edge computing and... Um, 
it's going to move people away from the data center. I, I couldn't make it all the way through, I have to say. Did you get psoriasis of the liver after two paragraphs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cirrhosis of the liver. Oh, I, think I do, I do apologize. <laughs> you mixed a skin condition <laughs> with uh, Well, it would be really irritating, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Joe's liver is on the outside. <laughs> It fucking wants to be. <laughs> oh, 5G. Yeah, 5G, the cloud. Maybe it's written by AI. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But they ask, what technologies or trends have the capability to drive edge computing forward and why to a bunch of people? And at least two of them say 5G is one of the drivers for edge computing. I, I think that if you kind of filter out all the bullshit, it's sort of true. A lot of what this article says that you know, that is the the future for IT because you've got all these companies who have sold us all the laptops that we're going to buy, all the tablets that we're going to buy, all the phones we're going to buy, all the smartwatches. And what else is there apart from edge devices that they need to sell us something, don't they? So they will do it through marketing. They say edge computing in its infancy. I mean, mm. it sounds like they've just described computing right now if you're not doing cloud you're keeping your data local, you're not transferring up to the cloud, and you're keeping it local. So yeah, like now then. And for the past 40-something years. Exactly. My understanding was that edge computing is in conjunction with the cloud usually. I didn't realize that it meant uh, that all of the computing was happening at the edge. I thought it was like just the edge of your network. I don't know, it just seemed like a bit of a meaningless bullshit term for Internet of Shit to me. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> <laughs> on to a bit of admin then. Thank you everyone for supporting us on Patreon and PayPal. Very much appreciated. And remember, if you support us for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. If you want to find out more about that, go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Now, something I've been thinking about is, in terms of community for this show... We don't really have anything apart from the Telegram group, which is not very open. And it seems like Discord is where it's at. All the cool kids are there these days. And it makes me think, I don't know, what should we do? Should we have more stuff for the community? Should we try and have a forum or a Discord or something? Or should we just stick to the Telegram group? Actually, I think I think it's a good idea. I mean, I don't massively participate in forums or discord although i do join a few things but it's it's i you know telegram's pretty good but it's you don't quite get that same sense of community out of this constant stream of opinion that you do from a forum where you know you can switch between topics more easily um, yeah, i think it's a good idea but there's nothing more depressing than a dead forum mm. yeah and so that seems a bit like an old school way to do it yeah. and if we had a Discord as well as a Telegram channel, like wouldn't that just be splitting the community? I don't know. Could we um, push everything from Telegram to Discord? <laughs> I don't know. I know you can do it with Matrix and stuff, mm. but I don't know about Discord. And people say, oh, well, Discord's really proprietary, but is it really any more proprietary than Telegram? I suppose, do you, Phelim, do you use uh, an F-Droid version of Telegram that's really out of date on your phone? Uh, the F-Droid uh, version of Telegram is actually quite up-to-date, but it has all the analytics stuff ripped out of it. Ah, 
fuck, maybe I should be using that. <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> I love how you always put me down to the lowest common denominator, it must be shit version. <laughs> maybe it's the better version. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Mm, that's really likely. And presumably there's no open source Discord thing, but you can use a web browser for it. I have no clue. But then you don't get notifications and stuff. I just everywhere I go, I say go mentally. Everything I listen to, everything I read, everyone's got a Discord. And I've always shunned it. And I don't know. Let us know, listeners, what you think anyway. Right, quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. Uh, the first one, high DPI fixes are coming. Yeah, talk about you know, a developer having your problems, anybody who's got high DPI, Nate Graham, who does the really good weekly updates on KDE, has got a 4K laptop screen on his latest laptop. And um, he's been going through a whole lot of positioning, scaling, um, wrong icons and stuff like that, and separators and all that sort of problems with uh, essentially high DPI issues. So expect a lot of fixes there, which is quite cool. I have nothing that's high DPI, so I really... I don't see any of these problems, but I can see from a lot of people who do, like you, you get awful glitches here and there, really weird ones as well. Yeah, especially when you start doing fractional scaling, stuff like that. Yeah. What's this KDE PIM updates then? So PIM, i.e. things like calendars, email, etc. Uh, they just have a two-monthly release of all the updates that they've done. Massive load of bug fixes in Kmail and Korganizer. The CalDAV, CalCard stuff has now become part of the frameworks of the latest one. And they're working on making it easier for devs to get into a lot of the libraries because they've grown over time to be these tangled mess of dependencies. And they're trying to make that much easier for people to get involved because obviously you want to keep the developer fresh. Fair enough. And Jonathan Riddle's been blogging about this uh, applications website thing again. Yeah, the KD application website has gone through a bit of a change. And what they've done now is they've tried to link in the various different uh, application stores that are involved for various pieces of software. So you might have some like Krita where you get it on the Windows store or on Linux and it would break down into package kit, snap and flat pack. Or it might be a mobile compatible app like uh, KD Connect, where you might get that on Linux and then you might get it on Play Store for Google, or you may get it on F-Droid. So it's quite cool. And uh, they've done quite a nice update on that. So it's, it's worth a look as well. And Thomas Canabrava has been writing about console, basically turning the KDE terminal into a fucking operating system by the looks of things with just all sorts of ridiculous shit like do an ls and you've got a load of photos in the directory and then you hover over them with the mouse and you see a fucking thumbnail preview of it who needs that imagine you have like hundreds on a web server and you're trying to go oh shit what should i put for the link for that one there you go. Now your problem is solved. <laughs> all right. Okay. I, but there's all these videos are worth a quick look, especially if anybody who does a lot of sysadmin stuff and they use terminal nearly day in day out, like I do. It's it's really cool. Like some of these, I, I didn't even realize are there. Even the the dimming stuff where you have active consoles and you know n making the active one the brightest one of the lot. Yeah, and now you can dim them right down so that they're basically totally off. That looks pretty cool. That's that would solve your problem, Will. Yeah, it does. Oh, I didn't even know the dim feature was there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've switched that on promptly once I saw the uh, this, and it, it's really good. Um, so yeah, a cool, few, a cool, nice wee features there, and just very simple, like thirty second videos, so you can see it in action. Really cool. The broadcast support seems a bit weird to me. You can have it broadcast what you're typing into other terminals. I don't see why you would necessarily want to do that. 
some people seem to like this for like cluster like SSH and things like that. I I just think that's a recipe for disaster. But hey, whatever takes your fancy. Yeah, but they're making it a very um, feature rich, let's say, terminal. I think I'll just stick to XFCE four terminal for now. <laughs> Is that RS two three two compliant? Yeah. Look, it's it supports basic functions. That's all I need. And you can make the uh, background black and the text green. That's wow. the only <laughs> feature you need in a terminal. Can you choose amber as an option? <laughs> no, you need that uh, retro cool term. Yeah, that's great. It's good. <laughs> With the scan lines and stuff. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phantom. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>